Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 3rd of August, as we record. As is now par for the course, the Bank of England has just hiked rates again to 5.25% this time. We are progressing serenely onwards, though. We will begin the show with a look at a UK, or at least a UK headquartered bank. That's HSBC, whose half-year results are out on Tuesday. Then our cover story this week is on companies with an AI edge, but not those big tech giants that have already captured a lot of the initial enthusiasm. We are also going to be talking about a part of the market that could do with a bit more enthusiasm. That's UK small caps and ask if and when better times might finally be forthcoming. Joining me to discuss all this are over the line, Mark Robinson. Good morning, Dan. Good afternoon, Mark. Uh, Julian Hoffman is also over the line. Hi, Julian. Uh, Hello, Dan. And in the studio, we have Gemma Slingo. Hi, Dan. And James Norrington. Hello, everyone. Julian, we will turn to you first because we're going to start with HSBC and you have covered the interim figures for us. Uh, The company said a good 2023 share price wise, at least. How did the figures themselves strike you? Yes, it was it was a pretty good performance from HSBC. Really, they basically it's all built on the back of uh, wider interest rate margins. So they had about zero point five percent basis points of increased uh, net interest margin, which fed through in a kind of leverage way to the uh, income statement. And uh, there was a surprise as well in that they they elected to give back about two billion more of capital than they had forecast before the results. So the market was quite surprised by uh, such a generous uh, uh, giveaway, as it were. Obviously, that's going back in, in the form of share buybacks. And uh, generally speaking, the, the the management seems to have put in the hard yards in trying to convince everyone that they're doing a decent job and the bank doesn't need to be broken up. And um, yeah, we we did see uh, you know, areas that they might be a little bit weak, but um, particularly things like Chinese property. But we'll probably get there onto that in uh, more detail in a moment. But uh, overall, it was it was a very solid set of results. And uh, you know, some analysts were saying that uh, if you know, if you're a European bank investor, there's there's probably no better options at the moment uh, than HSBC if you if you're interested in appreciating capital yeah. rather than, uh, rather than uh, you know waiting for some sort of uh, black swan to come along and wipe out the year's gains. Let's uh, talk about China a bit more. Let's get the, the potential, you know, bad news, the potential shadow out of the way first, uh, because there were some uh, increased provisions uh, in relation to China, Hong Kong assets, uh, not least the ever worrisome property market over there. Well, it's, it is basically the commercial property market that's causing uh, a lot of conniptions around uh, debt delinquency and that kind of that debate, really. And uh, in the second quarter alone, they had to book something like $900 million worth of uh, charges against possible defaults. Interesting, about a third of that was from the UK um, corporate banking market. So it wasn't all China. But uh, when you look at the state of the loan book, you can go into the results and, and they have quite a detailed breakdown of how they rate their own loans. So they go from excellent down to uh, default. And when you look at the Chinese property market, something like 40 or 40% or more now are rated less than satisfactory. So it's, a, uh, it's becoming a, a real ongoing issue. And you, you would expect the market would be more uh, nervous about it. But... Uh, the thing that's 
that's keeping everything on an even keel is that the defaults are no higher than anyone has expected or, or how HSB have, gu- have guided so far. So it would probably take a major downturn uh, for more of those loans to become delinquent. So that's why, in a sense, the market is forbearing um, HSB's exposure to, to mainland China's uh, commercial property market. But there's no doubt that it's in a massive bust. I, think, I don't think anyone's uh, past the point of arguing that uh, it'll somehow recover at this point. And there have been other uh, issues with China for HSBC, as you alluded to just before, specifically uh, the question of whether the bank should be broken up, which is being you know, driven by Ping Ang, its shareholder, the Chinese insurer, has been advocating for uh, you know, a rethink on that front. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, the management, told, uh, the chief executive, Noel Quinn, said that uh, the matter was closed as far as he, con- as he was concerned. But... Um, I think it's a bit like saying, you know, you should send your mercenaries back to Belarus and it won't be a problem anymore. Definitely, they still have the structural problem in that two thirds of their income is generated in a market that isn't the UK or Europe. And um, I can't see that uh, Ping An will give up um, its campaign to, to, to see a restructuring of the bank, even though it hasn't had... Um, massively huge support from the rest of the shareholder board, which I, you know, I think is quite significant, really, that a lot of people have been sitting on their hands over this. And, I mean, these results, plus the fact that they're giving back everything back in quarterly dividends, which was a key demand for a lot of investors, that they're actually returning capital in quite large amounts. The management seems to be trying to sway more of the base towards its position um, rather than Ping An. But, you know, I, I would say it's more like an armed truce than um, the end of the the problem for, for HSBC. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're Ping An, the, their idea being to split the bank into eastern and western, you know, halves, if you will, uh, that is going to retain a logic for them for as long as they're on the shareholder base. Uh, I think... Uh, 20% of shareholders voted in favour of the plan at, uh, in May, but, you know, that's still a pretty small minority. But mm. it may be that, you know, if performance starts to degrade somewhat, that those kind of, you know, advocates will get louder and will become larger in number. So really... Yeah, it's I mean, all- I mean, we're at the high tide, really. I mean, you, th- mm. you think they're at the high tide of the interest rate story at the moment. And if that changes substantially over the next 18 months... Plus, if they can't get their investment bank revenues recovering, then that might that might uh, that, that might look uh, attractive again as a as a way of uh, boosting earnings for HSBC for certain numbers of shareholders. But uh, at the moment, the, the the management's position is very strong, so I, I wouldn't imagine that that Ping An will be able to uh, to to increase the the amount of discontent based on 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 the voting uh, on the voting rights that have come through. But um, yes, yeah, so, you know, the other point as well is that wealth management is, is, is the future for them. So you know, H- HSBC, as well as trying to be a universal global bank, is also a, you know, quite a big financial services provider. So how that would get caught up in a, in a split is, is another point of contention, really. Is that, you know, notwithstanding the, the rate story, you know, it, is this could this be HSBC's time to shine because it is a global universal bank, you know, wealth management, investment banking, you know, retail banking in a number of different territories? You know, it's not going to be so reliant on 
the rate story and you know perhaps the end of yeah. the increase in net interest income margins that we've been seeing or been seeing some other banks heralding equally you know yeah its investment bank is struggling but that's only a small piece of the puzzle for hsbc so really in this kind of interregnum if you will perhaps that global banking model will look more attractive to investors well it, it's it certainly has its resilience and the the other thing that's quite interesting about them is that their cost their implied cost of capital is is one of the lowest you know so when you go through when you get kind of the risk premium that uh, the market attaches to each of these banks, it's not really through the shares, it's through what they're charged to to hold and raise capital. And HSBC is something like the bottom three in the world, whereas you know people like Deutsche Bank and Barclays are, are leading the pack in terms of having to pay quite a lot for the capital they use. And uh, I think that tells you how, how investors view the model in that uh, it seems to be incredibly resilient to uh, to a number of if any number of types of shock. I mean, let's not forget that, that the the bank came through the 08 crisis largely unscathed, and uh, it seems to be managing the downturn in in China within the limits it set itself. So, yeah, it it, it has it has a kind of attraction as a, a continued global bank. And again, that that comes back to the argument as as, as whether it should stay that way. And, uh, if it were just if it were broken up into its separate halves, would would that also uh, reduce the investment case accordingly? So I mean, there, there is a strength, there is a kind of story that uh, at least the managing the managing board can uh, can tell there. Yeah, we we have the company on hold at the moment. You know, share price perhaps up with events, up with most of these things we've we've spoken about. But Mark, you wanted to talk about the the dividend as well as the buybacks. Yes, yes. Um, it's interesting, really, what Julian was mentioned before, because obviously the uh, the net interest margin, that's the key metric uh, or one of the key metrics where banks are concerned. It's been heading in the right direction, obviously. And while that's had unfortunate implications for users of the, the bank's products, it's uh, rather better for uh, shareholders and the London market as a whole. I, I looked at uh, computer shares uh, dividend monitor covering the second quarter and what stood out was the fact of the uh, the contribution from the the banks uh they've been booking very strong uh profits and beyond the buybacks themselves they they paid uh, 7.8 billion pounds uh, in the second quarter that's an increase of uh, three-fifths year on year so it does show that there are some benefits for a higher uh, from a higher interest rate uh, environment Interestingly, with the dividends as well, the, the headline growth was hit by a fall in uh, special dividends. That was down by 86% year on year too. But then again, when you look at that, uh, most of that, or at least half of that, was re- um, related to uh, uh, return from uh, Capricorn Oil after the pre- uh, rejection of the, the Tullo Oil uh, merger. So... Once you take that out of the equation, underlying dividends have actually ticked up slightly over the period, which surprised many people too. And at the centre of that is the banks. One other point as well in Julian's article, I did note that he says that uh, the uh, regulatory, uh, well, the HSBC isn't subject to the same kinds of regulatory pressures at the moment uh, compared to some of its peers. Mm. Presumably that relates to liquidity ratios and capitalisation rather than any... uh, their dalliances in the past with Mexican cartels. Well, I mean, uh, you know, we all make mistakes, Mark. Um, 
Uh, <laughs> Indeed. No, I think that the point of that is that they're not under the political, because obviously I think they're technically based in Hong Kong, but have the subsidiary in the UK. So it's, it's not under the same political pressure as, say, NatWest, which is 40% owned by the government, effectively. Yeah. Um, and and the fact that uh, the other banks can more or less be bullied by the the FCA, so it's 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 in a different, it's in a slightly different category, uh, which is what uh, we were referring to there. Let's uh, let's move swiftly on. Uh, HSBC has had a good year, as mentioned, stock market wise, but even that is nothing in comparison to uh, anything really that has been associated with the idea of artificial intelligence and indeed the burgeoning reality of AI as well. Our cover story this week, though, looks at the subject from a slightly different angle, trying to find uh, some companies with an AI edge, but those that nonetheless aren't the immediate ones you think of. They aren't, you know, certainly not NVIDIA, the tech giants. Uh, James, you've written the piece. Um, can we start with maybe some of your, your thinking, if I haven't just summed it up already, but but also maybe this idea that, uh, you know, the picks and shovels, as they're called, that might not be this time the, the best way to play this new theme. Well, that was very much the premise I started out with, Dan, but actually um, I'm not quite sure that's true. Um, but I think there was a great deal of value looking at companies um, that are getting a bit ahead on the implementation um, of AI and also um, looking at... Um, the speed with which you know, they're making progress actually sort of feeds back into the the, um, the picks and shovels companies of um, of thinking, you know, well, how well can these companies do out of this or is this a short-term bubble that is going to disappoint people and deflate very quickly when, um, you know, we're not seeing massive earnings boosts. I mean, obviously, in, in the very sort of recent history, um, the tech companies have done pretty well with their US quarterlies uh, recently and I think, th- think their earnings beats for Microsoft – Alphabet and and Meta platforms were three of the companies sort of at the at the vanguard of, of AI, if you like. But the purpose of my piece was really to look at some of the companies and industries that are are applying AI and seeing, well, are there companies that you know aren't on sort of you know, thirty, forty, fifty times uh, you know um, current year earnings valuations that that could be a way to play this. And and I think you know the, the conclusion really was um, that there are some some encouraging signs, but but. But that has to be tempered by some of the other um, general risks that these these industries face. I mean, I look at a company like Siemens in Germany, which is one of the ones I looked at. You know, it's a, it's a very sort of strong business. Um, you know, Europe's sort of a real sort of bastion of European industry. They have their own AI lab. You know, with about five hundred patents and two hundred and fifty experts employed. That's one element. But obviously, at the moment, that's kind of secondary to the the travails of the German economy. Mm. I should uh, also talk about the picks and shovels argument for those who don't understand my, my phrasing there it, it is more about, you know, the companies who are providing the, well, in this case, the server power and the data centers and things like that. And in, in NVIDIA's case, providing the GPUs to power this AI revolution. The idea being that sometimes it's best to get in on the ground floor rather than looking at companies that do implement these services. But as you say, you know, we are focusing on the latter in this piece Siemens, uh, one suggestion there. Uh, I suppose the question is really, how quickly should we expect these kind of benefits to filter through? How quickly could we start seeing some of these, um, you know, AI developments at companies such as Siemens coming through, starting to affect 
if not necessarily the bottom or top line straight away, but affect you know the way they do things? Is it is it already happening? Well, it's already happening in terms of uh, you know implementing the technology. Um, uh, it, it, for example, the London Stock Exchange, which reported today, I mean they've been using uh, AI in terms of um, advanced dealing solutions for FX exchanges. That's that's one example. There's definitely been um, you know, uh, in healthcare, um, in 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 bio in uh, biotech and uh, pharma in 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 clinical trials. Um, the 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 ability of AI to be to be used to to, to make better sense of, of trial data um, and even to create synthetic data as well to to sort of to, to broaden the, the the test test database that 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 type of thing is um, is already happening when it will feed through to to products and services that will you know genuinely make a huge difference to to, to revenues um, and also crucially savings which will also you know, drop through to the, the bottom line as well in, in operations that's quite difficult you know we're looking at that there's an, there are some hurdles to adoption. Um, which is actually why it's also quite interesting to look at end user companies because mm. um, you know, people are worried about you know their IP going into the blob with AI if they partner with an AI for, an AI firm uh, and and you know things just getting swallowed up and and becoming part of the the the, the, the search semantics and, and not being their IP anymore and and not to mention issues around data security and data protection so it's um, you know, the, the, these are sort of poorly understood at the moment, and and that's potentially a, a barrier to adoption. Yeah, I suppose that is the the contrast with the you know the tech giants who very much are you know, or certainly Nvidia being ramped up very much on the prospect of future earnings. Notwithstanding its current earnings are also uh, pretty good, but you know it's a lot easier for those companies in some ways to you know make that leap because that's all they kind of need. You know those expectations. When you're talking about end users, you need to see the real evidence of it to to make that story compelling or compelling enough to offset some of the other uh, you know, threats and challenges for the business as we spoke about. The other thing uh, in the piece that I found particularly interesting was when you talk about you know, company moats. And obviously, again, with the tech companies, AI is seen as very much something, a big tech thing. You know, they've got the computing power. They've got the money to spend on development. But, but you make the point that for a lot of other companies, you know, AI might have the effect of you know, draining rather than raising these moats for companies. You know, it could be a threat as well as uh, an advantage. Yeah, I mean that that that's right, and and also uh, I mean if if any if this technology is all it's cracked up to be, it's going to become ubiquitous, which basically means it's going to open, um, it's going to reduce certain barriers to entry, it's going to democratize certain operational efficiencies, and that that's um, that's going to be um, something that that will have an effect on on the competitive landscape of of, of a lot of businesses, and and you know also the the, the the the, net, the downsides I've mentioned before, you know, if if you're um, just because you've been an early adopter in AI, you you may have um, uh, you may be a canary down the mine, and and you may sort of get some of these things wrong in in terms of protecting your IP, in terms of data protection, customer data, etc. And the people who come after you may may learn a bit more. I mean, that I think that one of the the key memories, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will remember the dot com bubble. Um, you know that you know, the internet didn't disappear after the dot com crash, but a lot of companies who were who who went in early um, and did. So, so I think that that's kind of why I mean I focused um, the piece on on actually some companies for the most part that uh, um, already have sort of very strong propositions in in the markets in which they operate, mm-hmm. and, and this is something that could augment that strong position as opposed to being 
um, the bright, new, shiny thing that they're all depending on. Yeah, that makes sense. We talked, spoken about a couple of those companies. We won't talk about them all, as usual. We'll save that for, you know, those looking at the story, picking up the magazine. LSE, though, uh, can we talk a bit more about how AI might help it, uh, you know, in future? Compliment. I said, I, said, I mean, um, you know, the... In the, in the earnings announcement this morning, there was a, there was a line mentioning you know that you know that they're um, they're pleased with their their sort of AI developments, um, and they talked about it specifically. I mean, they mentioned it in the in the context of the of the the FX dealing, um, but actually it's it's not so much on their traditional side of their business, the exchange side. It's actually if you think about the data side, obviously the big acquisition of Refinitiv a couple of years ago. If there is a question mark about. And well, there's two probably aside from the, the genuine um, uh, negative view of the UK as a place to list at the moment, which is a separate issue. But in terms of the business, it is how well they can make that refinitive acquisition work for them because data is a huge, um, you know, if you, if you, you also chuck in the fact that they own FTSE indices as well, yeah. You know, there are some potentially some pretty exciting applications of AI. I mean, in in terms of um, you know really packaging and making data products better and more intuitive, and in, in, and yeah, maybe attacking the market position of somebody like Bloomberg in data terminals and and, or, and mopping up more of that sort of um, next layer. But, but also in in terms of index index construction, index rebalancing, index creation. You know when. You talk about you know sort of ETFs, uh, uh, an industry worth trillions, and, and index licensing. This is a, an exciting opportunity as well. But obviously, a lot of this is is sort of conjecture. And, and uh, as I think Julian, or who covered the results uh, for us this morning, um, you know, it's, it's 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 very much still about the here and now. On that note, Julian, yeah, what, what's your take on well the short term, the recent past for LSE? What were those figures like from your point of view today? Uh, yes, it was an interesting set of figures from uh, LSE. Just to just to return to that uh, AI point, they they mention it once in the whole statement uh, in relation to their uh, risk profile. So <laughs> it's obviously something they're developing in the background, I think, rather than uh, than pushing to the fore. Uh, but there's clearly opportunities uh, for matching uh, data to users. I mentioned that that's a very good uh, use of artificial intelligence. Uh, but the, the, the figures themselves were were pretty much as the, the market had forecast. So uh, they were affected by a 4x and some issues around um, the timing of subscriptions. Uh, so the, the pre-tax line was down about 19%, but people seem to regard that as largely a technical issue rather than uh, denoting anything more fundamental. And um, as, as James is alluding to, I mean, they are spending a lot of money on, on development. So in the half alone, they, you know, they spent about $390 million on uh, maintenance capital uh, expenditure. So that's just keeping the lights on and uh, everything up to date. Uh, but the total spend was 488 million. So there's definitely a an excess that's going into uh, into new business areas and developing how that refinitive merger is going to come through and and deliver those data customers. So it's it was it was an interesting uh, it was an interesting set of results, but uh, not really out of the the ordinary really for how people had expected them to turn out. So. Yeah, if that makes sense. It, they, were, they were kind of uh, expected and uh, a lot of people took the opportunity to, to cash in a bit on the shares, which have, uh, have performed actually quite well over the last uh, six to eight months. Yeah. And um, yeah, so there, there was a bit of profit taking there as well. So yeah, they, the the key point with LSE is that they just generate vast amounts of cash. So, and and any, any, any organization that can do that 
um, can afford then to deploy the latest uh, technology in order to support the business. I dare say it won't be uh, too long before they are touting the benefits of AI going all guns blazing. That does seem to be the uh, the way forward for uh, company reports at the moment. You know, any mention of AI that can be made will be made. It's very much what I found with um, writing the, the feature. I mean, and, and it is still, I think, that you are focusing still on, on the, the core fundamentals for companies at the moment. But um, where there is a potential application and companies are moving first, then um, it's a nice potential kicker. But obviously, that the valuations are based on the on on the the core business models as they should be at the moment because mm. this is still something slightly ephemeral. Well, as I say, that is our cover story this week. So if you are interested in AI, then do pick it up and take a look. For now, though, we are going to turn to our final segment of the show, which is on small caps, smaller companies, and UK smaller companies in particular. This is something, uh, Gemma, you've written about this week. Our bear bull columnist has also written about it this week. Uh, Start maybe we'll start with the research we're looking at from MSCI in particular. What does that say about about small caps? I think basically it, it's telling people to to hang on in there really, and mm. that good things might be around the corner. So there seems, I mean, there's loads of research in this area, but MSCI published research last month which basically said small caps have historically outperformed larger ones, especially after recessions and over longer time periods. Um, and I think they're looking forward thinking, well, if there is going to be a recession, that means after that there could be a really, really strong rebound. Um, and they had this useful graph which basically looked at US small caps in particular over 70 years and tracked every single recession and showed in every instance small caps did outperform to varying extents afterwards. Um, but I think it's a matter matter of timing, which isn't always easy. Yeah, as that implies, obviously, you know, the UK market... The start of this year, there were some quite big hopes for the small cap section, not least because it had uh, underperformed so badly last year. It's still been a little bit underwhelming this year. AIM, certainly the actual FTSE small cap has been a bit better. Uh, it's interesting, though, in the US, that, that you know, all, for all our talk of AI and you know the S&P being powered by these seven companies, that the Russell uh, 2000, I think it is, the smaller cap index, has done quite well as well. So it could be a sense that they are further along the economic journey or, you know, it could be something something else perhaps. I think so, yeah. And it does seem very much linked to the minutiae of the economic outlook at particular, at particular points. So I was looking at one investment trust that focuses on small companies and the chairman there was basically saying that investors seem to have this obsessive interest in what's happening in the very near term um, with interest rates. And as you say, US, maybe the outlook's a bit more positive um, and the UK is still still feeling pretty gloomy. So that seems to be weighing on, on the stocks here, I think. Yeah, we, we shouldn't forget, of course, you know, the, the specifics of each individual company, which is always going to be you know, crucial to success. That said, some of those qualities may be being overlooked uh, at the moment. Uh, Aberforth, I think it was who you spoke to, obviously they have an interest in this area, but they seem to think, you know, that in the UK, small caps they're looking at at least, you know, they still look operationally pretty good. Yeah, the frustration was palpable, really, when I was looking at their half-year results. Um, they were basically saying, from a balance sheet perspective, the companies are way stronger than they have been for a while. So they look back to the 2009 recession when they said, you know, lots of companies were overly leveraged and got into trouble because of that. Whereas today, they're going in, many of them had sort of cash positions, but if they didn't, they didn't have huge amounts of debt. 
Um, and then jumping back to that MSCI research, they were looking at profitability um, in global small caps. And they were basically saying profitability was good. And analysts were starting to improve their EPS forecasts um, after, you know, quite a bad 2021 and early 2022. So it seemed, at least from the fundamentals, that things are OK. But investors just are still still quite cautious. Yeah, to to detail slightly into the aforementioned Bearball column this week, uh, I think Mr. Bearball, well, I know Mr. Bearball because I've read the column. Uh, he, he looks at some of the companies he highlighted in this area a year ago and kind of compares the the status of them now, not just their share price performance, but also, uh, you know, profit margins, return on assets. And, and in line with what you just said, Gemma, you know, most of these companies have managed to maintain or even increase margins, return on assets is much the same. Uh, you know, dividends, increasing dividend yields, a little bit higher dividend cover, a bit lower, but not too bad. So there is the sense that these companies are still being overlooked a little bit. He goes into, you know, specifics of the individual companies there. But but there is this sense that, uh, you know, in some cases, they're just waiting for buyers to emerge, which leads me on to maybe the final point, which is that in some cases, these buyers, of course, are emerging from outside the stock market or whether that be private equity or, you know, a US firm or something like that, you know, there has been bid activity for small caps. And arguably, that is going to continue if these companies still perform well, but their share prices are still languishing. I think so. I mean, they are really, really cheap by the looks of things. Um, And Aberforth pointed out that particularly the really small companies, so ones with market caps of under £600 million, seem to be at this massive discount. Um, And they kept an eye on what was going on with the private equity Firms, And I think there have been six bids between January and June for companies on the new Miss Smaller Companies Index, um, all of which represented a big premium to their their current share prices. So there is interest in the space. um, But I suppose it's just hard to know whether things will get worse before they eventually get better. Mm. Well, to bring things full circle, obviously, the Bank of England has raised rates again today, maybe nearing the end of its hiking cycle. So perhaps we're getting closer to a point where... Uh, you know, people do start to look again at this part of the market and think about where those growth opportunities might come from. That does bring us to the end of today's show, though. So thank you very much to Gemma, to James, to Mark and to Julian. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Market show. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.